give you the praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. I'm going to be in John, the third chapter this morning. Now, this is probably, we're going to be talking about some of the most famous scriptures in the Bible, and most of us know it, but I've been talking about conversations with Jesus for the last couple weeks, and I'm, unless God changed my mind, I'm going to continue on that venue, because there's a lot of interesting conversations that Jesus had with people, one-on-one, and uh, I think they're kind of interesting, and this is one of the most critical conversations I think is in the Bible because it deals with being born again and a lot of people are confused by that and what do they mean well uh, Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus over 2,000 years ago and his words still ring true today and they're uh, we need to apply them to our life so that's what we're talking about this morning in March 18th Lena tried not to think about the fact that Melvin would be have been 39 today The face of the man driving the van flashed in her mind. She tried not to feel the anger. Once more, the scream of brakes, the crash, and then the silence replayed itself in her memory. She thought of the whispers in Melvin's ear through a maze of tubes and machines, words that she could only hope he somehow had heard. Lena remembered having to tell her two boys about the nightmare and trying to support him in their grief as she struggled with her own. She remembered the sound of the blades whipping through the evening sky as the helicopter carried Melvin's organs to others who very depended, whose very life depended on his final gift. Who were they? Would she ever get to see them? The recipient of Melvin's heart had written twice in the year and a half since the transplant. Lena had finally found the courage to answer and admit she longed to hear that beautiful heart beat again. There was no way she could have known that at that very moment, John Medenhart and his wife, Jan, were signing release forms to reveal their identity to the donor's family. John's head swam with memories, too. He could almost feel the mix of terror and elation hearing the words, the nurse's casual statement that a heart had been found. He wanted to live so much, but he had struggled with the guilt, knowing that for him to live, someone else would die. He remembered the nurse walking away and his wife slipping under the covers and holding him. She had kissed him his heart goodbye. Together they had prayed for the doctors and their future and surrendered the outcome to God. Later that night, a small light appeared in the evening sky and soon the roar of whipping chopper blades. Jan remembered the tears watching that blue igloo igloo cooler being lowered from the helicopter and carried into the hospital on a dolly. She had stopped the survival flight team and dropped to her knees to kiss the cooler. She prayed with their children for the success of the surgery and for the family of the donor. And now John was signing the papers to meet that family that had so many times they had wrapped in gratitude. Soon John and Lena were choking back tears as they spoke on the phone. When can we meet, John asked. How about in an hour at Latina's Pizza? Lena agreed, and after an hour later, Lena had laid her head upon John's heart and heard the heart she had loved so long, Melvin's heart, that heart which had given new life to John. As John lay in that hospital bed, he knew that he wouldn't survive unless he got a new heart. That was the reality of his life. And Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, and he knew he needed something. He didn't know what it was, but he knew he needed something. And so that's why he came to Jesus. But Jesus 
answered his question and met a need. And in that same question, God is answering for us today in these verses this morning in John, the third chapter, verse 1. And uh, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the miracles, miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. And replied, Jesus, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now there's a lot of conjecture about why Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Some people say, well, it's because he was afraid. Afraid that the other Pharisees may see that he was there. After all, Jesus was, had been causing a big ruckus. In the second chapter, we read where Jesus cleansed the temple and he made a big noise. And the Pharisees weren't too happy about that. So there's a lot of conjecture. Maybe he came to Jesus by night because he was afraid of being seen. But there's also a custom during that period of time frame that if you wanted to talk about things, that you would talk about them at night. If you want to discuss especially religious matters or things like that, at the end of the day when all your work was done, you came together, you know, they didn't have TV. They didn't have books that they could read. They could go to the temple and the scrolls would be read to them, but they didn't have anything that they personally, you know, could do for, for entertainment per se. So they just sit around and visited. Maybe they were sitting around the campfire. I don't know. That's what we always did when we went up the mountain. We didn't have uh, TV or all those kind of things. We'd sit around, light a fire, and talk. And we loved the night times because it was a time of fellowship. It was a time of just communicating back and forth. So that could have been why Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and not the other aspect that, that he was afraid of being seen. Either direction, it doesn't matter. Either way, he came. Whatever you want to believe on that aspect of it, go ahead. It doesn't, you know, Because it doesn't give us that information. I'm more inclined to believe that he wasn't afraid. I, I believe that... Uh, it was because of it was a custom and he wanted to catch Jesus. When no one else was around, he wanted to talk to him. He had some things that he wanted to ask Jesus and he, that he wanted to know. And he didn't want to do it with a bunch of people around. Because it's hard to talk to, to someone and communicate with them with a bunch of people around. Isn't it? You're trying to talk on the phone. Your kids come in and want to talk to you. And you say, just a minute, just a minute, you know, with the busyness of life. But at the end of the day, when everything is done and you're sitting around maybe around the dinner table or in the evening, whatever it might be, they had time to do those kind of things. So that's where I'm more inclined to believe than the uh, fact that he was afraid because his actions later on proved that he wasn't afraid. But it doesn't matter. Uh, verse 2 said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, this seems like an odd question for Nicodemus to be asking. We know that you're a teacher sent from God. That's why he came to Jesus? Well, that, I don't think that that was there. I think that he just didn't know what questions to ask or what actually to get the information that he really needed because he didn't know. And Jesus, he jumped right to the heart of the matter, and he didn't uh, do that. He said in verse 3, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. What do you mean, explained Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? See, Jesus ignored the question that, that Nicodemus was asking and went right to the heart of the matter. And that Nicodemus, I believe, was a religious leader. He wanted to know, what do you say? What is the requirement for us to get to heaven? What do we have to do? I think that as a Pharisee, he knew all the rules and regulations, and that wasn't cutting it for him. He knew that there was, God had to be something more. And if you're in a, people that are involved in a religion, 
they're probably asking the same thing. There's got to be more than just trying to live this religion. There's got to be a lot more. But he didn't know how to ask those questions. And we run into people every day that don't know how to ask those questions. So they ask, what religion do you belong to? Or what do you believe? And all these things and the differences are many sometimes between what people believe and what, what we believe. But Jesus cuts right to the chase and tells you it isn't about religion. It's about being born again. And this confused Nicodemus. He didn't know when. What are you talking about? And uh, verse 5, it said, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can re reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Now, Nicodemus didn't really understand what this born again was. And we're going to meet people every day that aren't going to understand it. And Jesus knew that too. So that's why this gospel of John and this third chapter of John is so important because it helps us to be able to try and understand it and how to tell people about it. First of all, it says that that's what's born of water is one thing. Now, you know that when women go into labor, before they give birth, their water breaks or it's broken for them. So we have to be born physically. We have to be born. We're born in a sack of water in our mother's womb, and we're surrounded by water until we are birthed, and then we're born of water. The water comes out, and then we're born. So that's the one birth that we have. We don't have a problem with that. Everybody you meet has experienced that birth. And that's why angels can't, get, get, can't get, accept Christ as Savior because of the fact they weren't born of water. They have to be born of water. And that, everybody here was born of water. <laughs> they're trying to get around that, though, and with their test tubes and all the other things that they're messing with as far as uh, raising children, those kind of things. They're trying to stick their hands in there. But God says that's the first requirement. You have to be born of water. You have to be born of human parentage. That's the requirement. Okay, well, that qualifies everybody. He says the second thing you need to do is born of spiritual things. You have to be spirit-born. Now, that was a little confusing to, uh, to Nicodemus. That's why God used the example of physical birth. So, we'd know, so he'd be able to understand that it is an actual experience that you can feel maybe, you know, just as human birth was. Verse 7 says, says don't, so don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Jesus is basically saying you don't have to understand being born again. You don't have to understand what this spiritual birth is to be able to experience it. And that's what he's telling Nicodemus. You know, get away from the confusion. There isn't a matter of confusion or understanding, it's, but you can still experience I don't understand how a car works, an engine works. All I know is I go out there and turn on the key and it works. It starts. If we had to understand everything that we utilize in our lives before we use it, we wouldn't be using anything. We'd be sitting in the corner. If I had to understand how a television works before I could turn it on, I'd never watch television. I don't understand how the radios work. I don't understand how they pick up signal waves and all this other kind of stuff. I don't have to understand it in order to experience it. And that's what God's telling Nicodemus. You don't have to completely understand it. You just have to know that it's a requirement. And you don't do it you're by yourself. And uh, let's see. Verse 9. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. Can I enter the second time into my mother's womb and be born? 
So Nicodemus was completely confused. He came there trying to get answers, and all he got was more questions and really puzzling questions to him. And we're going to meet people every day that's going to have a problem with this born-again thing because they don't understand it. To them, it just blows their mind. What are you talking about? And so we can, we can look at these scriptures and we can go these, through this verse, this chapter of John, and help them and explain what God says about it and help them understand what God means by being born again. Verse 10, it said, Jesus replied, You are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you do not understand these things? See, Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand what he was talking about. After all, he was a religious teacher. He was the one that was responsible to teach the congregation of the Jews. He was the one that needed to understand it. And Jesus said, man, you're a teacher and you don't understand it? You don't understand what a new birth is? He thought he should have understood it. I don't know why he thought it. <laughs> because there's a lot in the Bible that he had the Old Testament. It talked about these things, but it talked to him in a different way, in shadows and, uh, and things that they didn't really understand until the point happened. And I think that that's what happened with, with, um, with the Nicodemus. And so we, today, we aren't expected to really understand about it, how it works or any of those kind of things. God isn't telling us to understand it or know how it works. He's expected us to know about it, though. He's expected us to know the requirement that you're not going to get into heaven without being born again. It's available to anyone that's been born of the mother's womb. So it's available to everyone we meet. They don't have to understand it. We just have to know that it's a requirement. And as Christians, we have to know that. That every person we come in contact with every day needs to be born again. I don't care what church they go to. Whether you're a Baptist, a Presbyterian, Assembly of God, it doesn't make any difference. Jesus said you have to be born again. And if he made a requirement of it, then he wants to make it easy for us to do. Uh, verse uh, 11 says, I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Now, this is the problem that we have today. We give people our testimony. We try to tell them where God brought us from and, and what he's done in our lives, and they don't accept our testimony. They don't I think, oh, you're just turned into a religious fanatic because they don't get this born-again thing. They don't understand it. And so... We have a problem with that, and yet, we, by the other hand, we expect these people to understand heavenly things. They can't understand being born again, then they aren't going to be able to understand anything else. And we expect trying to get people to understand, and so we don't explain it to them. We assume they know everything, and they don't. We have, God's telling us, take it upon yourself to make sure that you give me your testimony. Try to explain what God has done in your life. And if they accept it, Fine. If they don't accept it, they're not going to accept anything else that you tell them. It isn't going to make any difference because those are heavenly things. And you can't understand heavenly things until you've been born again. And so we have to start there. Everybody has to start at the cross. The ground is equal at the cross. It doesn't matter what your religion is. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter who you are. Whether you're a king, a prince, a president, or whoever it is, everyone has to be born again. That's what God's word says, and we have to understand that. And if they can't get that, they're not going to get anything else that we tell them. doesn't matter. But as soon as they get that, then everything else falls into place. Uh, let's see, verse 13. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. 
And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, Jesus gave him an example of what he was talking about. He wasn't just, he just come right and told him. And now these verses come right out of Numbers, the 21st chapter, because Jesus preached a lot from the Old Testament. That's why I don't understand people that want to throw out the Old Testament. We need it. Jesus preached from it. And if Jesus preached from it, it must have been important. Uh, it, Numbers 21, starting in verse 4, it says, Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained. Then it, there is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, but we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and Many were bitten and died. Then, then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole, and all who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of, the bron out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Now, I notice one thing about those verses that God didn't remove the snakes. It's just as easy for him to remove the snakes as he sent them, because he sent them. <laughs> so when you start complaining, the snakes are going to be somewhere coming around to bite you. <laughs> now, in this, it says fiery serpents in, uh, in the King James. And I looked that up, want to know what these fiery serpents were. And I've been for the last month or six weeks been trying to remember to tell it in Bible study because we talked about it one week. And uh, these fiery ser serpents, what they were, they were vipers. They weren't like rattlesnakes. They were just like re regular snakes. And they looked like a, uh, a copper color or a reddish color. And they were very fast. And so when they struck, it was just like they were flying because they were so fast. And they could jump a long ways and they'd bite you. And the, the venom of the snake was, so, was really bad, but it didn't kill you instantly. You know, they've got snakes now. They call them one-step snake, two-step snake, and a three-step snake. That's how many steps you take before you die, one, two, or three. <laughs> but this wasn't like that. This snake was a snake that it took you three or four days to die. And during that period of time, you got deathly ill from the bite of that snake. So they had plenty of time to suffer before they died. And so they had plenty of time to complain to Moses. And Moses made a replica of the snake, and he put it up on a pole. And he said, anyone that looks upon the snake on the pole will be saved, basically. And uh, this replica of this uh, incident is where we got our medical symbol that we use today. Only they added a snake <laughs> to it, serpent. They got two of them wrapped around the pole for the medical symbol instead of uh, just one. But uh, this was a replica of the snake. That's what he made and put on the pole. Well, God made Jesus a replica of us. And boy, we have to do the same thing. He says, just as Jesus would be lifted up the same as a snake did. A replica of man is going to be lifted up on, on the pole. And when we look at him, the same thing will happen. We'll be saved. Now, we, God knows that every one of us is going to be bitten by sin. Because sin is what we need to be saved from. Sin, because when it bites you, it kills you. It's death. And we're all sinners. We've all sinned. There's not one of us that hasn't sinned. Not one of us. So we know that we've all been bitten. And we all need to do the same thing that the children of Israel were supposed to do. 
And that was look, at the, look upon the, the pole or look upon the cross in the New Testament and you'll be saved. And Jesus uses that as an analogy for being born again. Now when you look upon Christ that's lifted up on the, on the pole or on the cross, when you would trust in him, then you're going to be saved. That's what he was telling Nicodemus. And Jesus simplified it by just saying that, you know, when you just look at Jesus to be saved and he would provide the new birth. You do this, and God will provide the new birth. We don't have to do anything about it. We didn't have to do anything about our first birth. We were just born. God created us in the womb because of the way that he set up that situation. We didn't have to do anything. All we did was grow until we got big enough and we got out. We wanted out. <laughs> get out of here. I'm going to get out of here. We didn't have to do anything for our first birth. Well, we don't have to do anything for our second birth either. But look. Look. To Jesus on the cross and that's what he's telling Nicodemus and that's why he he used that for an analogy because that's what Jesus said if I be lifted up I will draw all men to me not me not a church not a denomination he said I will and I don't think this really uh, Nicodemus actually grasped this until he's seen Jesus on the cross I don't think he grasped it until that moment because a lot of things that that people they really didn't understand we, we don't have a problem with it because we're looking back at it and we understand everything because we've seen everything we've seen the cross we've seen the old testament prophecies of the cross and how these things that would happen and how jesus fulfilled them so when we look back we don't have a problem with it because we know it happened well nicodemus i believe when jesus was lifted up that these words of jesus kind of finally hit home but see jesus or nicodemus he believed jesus who, who he was who he said he was because he came became a follower of jesus before jesus was crucified Jesus had followers and believers before he was crucified. And people had faith in him and who he was. Because Nicodemus, he basically had a, had a statement of faith. We know you were come sent from God. So he got that much right. He knew he was from God. So he got that part right. So he was on the right road. And I don't believe he fully understood it until Jesus actually died on the cross. And people have the same hard time today understanding salvation. It's really hard to talk to people about being born again and helping them understand. But as soon as they understand that they need to be saved and they need a redeemer, then they get it. But until that point, they don't. And it, what we're doing is talking and talking and talking, trying to get them to understand their need of Christ. Because that's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what church you belong to. You can join every church there is that you can think of. And you can do all the works you want. It doesn't matter. But if you're not saved, if you're not born again... It doesn't make any difference. You can't work your way to heaven. He didn't provide works as a way to salvation. He probably provided the cross. And looking to the cross, that's what matters, is looking to the cross and Jesus on the cross. Now, verse 16, For God so loved the world that, who so, that so much that he gave his one and only Son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, this is the, probably the most famous scripture in the whole Bible. If you don't know any other Bible verse, everybody knows this one. You see it at ball games. People in the audience, they're lifting up John 3.16. Or John Tebow, or Tim Tebow, he's had it on his little eye patches, if you watched him at all. He'd change scriptures under his eyes that he'd wear on his little, little black things he put under his arm. He put, uh, in his eyes, he'd put scriptures on there, and he'd change them all the time. And every time you seen him, you'd see a scripture right there. <laughs> but John 3.16 is the most famous scripture in the Bible. And it's basically the gospel in a nutshell. It talks about, that's it. If you get John 3.16, you got it. 
And that's why there's, there's one verse that if you don't know anything else about the Bible and you know the scripture, you have enough of the gospel to be saved. You have enough of the gospel to lead other people to Christ. And I think every one of us here memorized this scripture. I think we can all quote this scripture without no problem. Because this is the foundational scripture of Christianity. It's the foundational scripture of our relationship with God. Now Christ was, in verse 17, God said, sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. See, we think that sometimes that God just came to bring, Jesus came to bring judgment, and he didn't. We were condemned before Jesus came. We were all condemned by sin. We'd all sinned, and we either had to go through the law in order to, uh, to be saved, and it was a hard journey. Killing animals for your sin, like I said, I couldn't afford it. I don't know how they afforded it back then. I guess, you know, maybe if we if we've seen that all the time, that we'd be a little more careful of our actions. I don't know. But that was the only way you could come to God before, was by through a bunch of rules and regulations. But Jesus did, changed all that. He made it available to everyone, and all we have to do is come to him. He didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. And sometimes we live in a world where I think, oh, God, well, he's going to send everybody to hell. What kind of a God's that? Well, he didn't come. To condemn us. He come to save us. And we got to realize that. That's the emphasis of his birth. That's the emphasis of his life. And that was the emphasis of his death. So that we wouldn't be condemned. That's why he came. He came to save us all. And there was only one person that could save us. Because death was a requirement for sin. Well, the only way we could be saved was if someone without sin died. And the only one that has ever lived without sin was Jesus. And he didn't come just to enjoy life and have a good time. He came, his whole purpose to come was to die on a cross. And we need to understand that. That was his whole purpose in coming. He could have just come as a man born and died, but he wanted us to, people to be able to relate to him and to understand life and enjoy life so we could learn what it's like to be a Christian. Hey, it's okay to laugh and be a Christian. It's, it's okay to, to visit with your friends. It's okay to do a lot of these things. And Jesus was very, a very social person. He had fellowship all the time with people, besides just teaching and all the things that he did. But that was his sole purpose for coming was to die. And I know that in the, you know, we watched some of these movies, and I was watched uh, something about one guy that was dying, and he needed, he needed a, a liver transplant. Well, he, found, he had a son that he didn't care anything about, deserted and gave up, but he had money, so he hunted this kid down, and he was going to kill the kid and take his liver because he was his son. That isn't God's way. Jesus came willingly to die because he knew that we, he, we was his own, he was our only hope. And Jesus loved us so much. I don't understand why God loved us. I don't understand. Of course, as a parent, I guess we do get a little insight into that because we know we'd do anything for our children, wouldn't we? If our kid was dying, we'd give our life for them. As parents, we'd do that. So we kind of understand that. But as in the spiritual world, we can't. Only God could send his only son to die for our sin because he's the only sinless person there. And death was required because of our sin. So Jesus took the penalty of our sin, which was death, upon himself. Willingly, he did that. Um, because of sin and unbelief, though, many people, many people will refuse God's gift. We can't force people to accept Christ. We can't force them to trust in Jesus. I wish we could. I wish we could just hold them down and just until they accepted Christ, but we can't. You know, I'd love, I wish it was that. I wish we could do that. 
hold the gun on him and say, are you ready to die? <laughs> no, better accept Christ. <laughs> It'd be nice if we could do that. Man, I'd be running around with two guns. <laughs> you know, change the world. But that isn't what God, the way that God did it. It has to be a willing choice on their part, no matter how much we'd like it to be. In 1969, in past Christian Mississippi, a group of people in the posh, rich, Richardolo apartments, whatever it's pronounced, were preparing to have a hurricane party in the face of a storm named Camille. Facing the beach less than 250 feet from the surf, the apartments were directly in the line of danger. Were they ignorant of the dangers? It certainly doesn't seem so. The local police chief, Jerry Peralta, came by to beg them to evacuate. This is my land, one of them yelled. If you want me off, off, you'll have to arrest me. Now, he didn't want to arrest anyone, but he wanted to be able to persuade them to leave. He want, didn't want them to stay there. He wanted them to leave. He wrote down the names of the next of kin of the 20 or so people who gathered there to party through the storm. They laughed as he took their names. They had been warned, but they had no intention of leaving. It was about 10:15 p.m. when the front wall of the storm came ashore. Scientists clocked Camille's wind speed at more than 205 miles per hour, the strongest on record. Raindrops hit with a force of bullets, and waves off the golf course created, crested between 22 and 28 feet high. News reporters later showed that the worst damage came at Past Christian, Mississippi, where some 20 people were killed at a hurricane party in the rich, rich low apartments. Nothing was left of the three-story structure but the foundation. The only survivor was a 25-year-old uh, boy found clinging to a mattress the following day. As these people rejected the warnings of the impending danger of a hurricane and chose to ride out the storm, died, so will people that we come in contact with every day. Our job is to warn them, just like this police officer's job was to warn these people. But he couldn't force them to leave. They thought they were going to ride out the storm and have a good party. And we live in a world where all they want to do is party and have a good time. And they don't care about the warnings. They don't care about the danger because to, to them, they think we're a bunch of idiots. We're religious fanatics. They don't understand it. But just as these people perished in the hurricane, these people that we talk with every day, if they don't accept Christ, they're going to perish. And we need to understand that. And that alone should spur our hearts to be able to reach out to people and make sure that they've been warned. We need to warn our loved ones. We need to warn our friends about the impending danger. Just as this hurricane came and destroyed this area of town and killed all these people, God's judgment is going to come one day to this earth. And God's judgment is going to come to every person on this earth. And every person is going to stand before God and give an account. I know that people have a big time and laugh about going to hell and all these things, but it isn't going to be a party in hell. It isn't going to be a party. And we need to understand this. They, gri they joke around, well, I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends are. It's funny to them because they don't grasp it. They don't understand how dangerous that they're messing with fire and they're dangerous. They think that they're, oh, when they stand before God, they're going to tell him a thing or two. Well, I got news for them. When they stand for God, they're going to be sh shaking in their boots. It isn't going to be a pleasant experience for them. But we as Christians, we know the truth. And we are obligated to warn our loved ones. We're obligated to warn our friends that danger is coming.
It's worse than a hurricane because the hurricane is just, you know, if all you have this life and you lose it, big deal. All right. But there's an eternal life. There's an eternal death that God wants to give us eternal life. And that's why Jesus came. He wanted to save us from the condemnation. He wanted to save us from the judgment that was going to come. That was his purpose in coming. And we need to understand that. And just that in ourself should be enough to warn other people. We should want to warn our loved ones and let them know. So I don't want anybody that I've ever come in contact with, with in my whole entire life that I had an opportunity to talk to stand before God and say, they never told me. I don't want anybody to be able to say that. I want to make sure that I've had opportunity when I sit on and talk to somebody, I want to be able to share my faith with them and to be able to warn them. Because if, if there was a big storm coming here to Kanab, we'd warn our friends. We'd say, you know, we'd call and say, hey, do you know there's a big storm coming? And they're asking us to evacuate. We'd call everybody that we knew. And sometimes the weather reports aren't accurate. But God's report is accurate. And whatever he says in this book is going to happen. And we need to understand that. It isn't about God so loved the world. That isn't all, all the scripture. It says only those that accept Christ, only those that trust in Jesus are the only ones that's going to be spared. They're the only ones that's going to be saved. They're the, everyone that looks upon the cross and looks upon Christ as the sacrifice for our sins, those are the ones that are going to be saved. Not every man, woman, and child because they heard the gospel. You have to accept it. You have to accept it into your heart and you have to trust it in your heart because that's the requirement. Not knowing about it, these people knew a storm was coming. They didn't care. They thought, oh, hey, it's a big joke. And there's a lot of people we meet every day that think it's a big joke. But we're obligated to, to talk to people and warn them. After that, it's up to them. If they want to stay and party when a hurricane or a storm's brewing outside the world, let them. There ain't nothing we can do about that. We can't force freedom, Jesus. We can't force them. doesn't say in the Old Testament that if somebody got bit by a snake, they went over there and grabbed them and they told them, look at this. They didn't do that. They had to do it willingly on their own part. And that's what we have to do today, too. We have to willingly look to the cross. <clears throat> and as those rejected the warnings by Camille, Lord, are going to be those that reject Christ in the final days. Now, it, Lena's husband, Melvin, gave a gift of new life. But it wasn't because he chose to do it. It was an accident. And because of the accident, someone else gained new life because of it. But that isn't the case with Jesus. Jesus willingly came. He willingly gave his life. He willingly died on the cross for our sin. He didn't, it wasn't an accident. And he, he was willing to do it because he knew we needed to be born again. We needed our hearts changed. We needed a, a, a change in our life. And he knew that we didn't need a tune-up or a self-help program. Because the Bible isn't about a self-help program. It's about being born again. And like John's physical heart in, this, in the story that we read early was beyond prepare. He needed a transplant. That's what he needed. He didn't need a, a clean-up. He didn't need a tune-up. He needed a new heart. If he wanted to live, that was the only thing that was going to save him. And that's the same thing with us today. And the, and the purpose of the transplant is to take out the old, the bad, and put in the new. That's the purpose of it. And if I took my, if my truck blew an engine and I needed a new engine, I'd take it to a mechanic. The mechanic would take out the old engine and put in a new, new engine. Now, if I got the truck back and it didn't run any differently, then I'd know that they didn't transplant the heart or the engine. They just cleaned it up. And we have a lot of people that go in and all they do is get, their clean, get it cleaned up. 
I'm okay, you're okay, theology. But Jesus didn't come to, to just give us a cleanup job. He came to give us a new heart. He came to give us a new life. He came to give us a transplant. And the amazing thing about a, a, tra- a transplant is that sometimes when people have transplants, their DNA changes. Sometimes their blood type changes, which I think is very interesting. <laughs> but that's the same thing that God wants to do with us. When he gives us a new heart and a new life, he wants us to change. And if our life hasn't changed any, then we have to question whether we've been born again. And we need to go back to the cross, and we need to go believe in Christ, look to the cross. Now, belief actually means trust in. And if you trust in something, you're going to act, act differently. You're going to do things differently. And our behavior is going to be changed. Now, this is our change in behavior that saves us. It's a transplanted heart. It's a new life that Jesus gives us. That's what being born again is. You look to the cross, and you say, I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I want, I want to accept you as my personal Savior. I want to accept you, the gift that you died on the cross for me. I want to accept your penalty, the, your death on the cross, the penalty that you paid. I want to make it for me. I want to accept it for me. And then once we do that, then God takes care of the other stuff. He transplants our heart. And the more that we, we serve God, the closer we get to God, and the more we read his word, and the more we talk to God, pretty soon that old heart, that old nature, is just turned around and it's turned upside down. Because God does it. We can't clean up ourselves. Oh, we can try. And we say, I turned over a new leaf. Well, there's no leaf turners in heaven. <laughs> he didn't come to help us be leaf turners. He, he's got enough gardeners. He don't need that. We need a new heart. We need a transplant. We need a new life. <coughs> One of the questions that John Melkenhard had for Lena was, did Melvin like pizza? He said, I used to hate pizza. But now since this, I got this new heart, I just love it and I can't get enough of it. And pizza happened to be <clears throat> his, his favorite meal. And so that's kind of the same thing that happens with us. <clears throat> when we come to him, he changes our heart. And he makes his desires our desires. And then we don't want to do the things that we used to do. See, that's the amazing thing about it. It isn't a religion at all. Jesus didn't die for a religion. We got plenty of religion in this world, don't we? We don't need religion. I mean, it's good for us. It helps us. It gives us uh, direction. It gives us guidance. And it helps us. But Jesus died to give us a relationship so we can walk into the throne room of God and we can talk to him one-on-one. And that is such a privilege we don't understand. But we have to do it. We have to accept him. If we don't trust in him and believe in him, we don't get eternal life. That's the only way we get it, by trusting in him. Let's pray. I pray, Father, Lord, I thank you.